I want to read a little passage from the first sermon ever preached. Um, first distinctly Christian sermon ever preached. It's found in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Amen. Acts chapter 2, and I'll start with verse 29. This is Peter preaching to a very hostile audience on the day of Pentecost. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried. No one's going to argue that point. He died and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, if you don't believe what I'm saying, take a short walk and go visit his tomb. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on his throne. Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying, He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. In other words, though David is still in his tomb, his tomb is still full, and you can check it out, the one whom David spoke of, Jesus, he's not still in his tomb. And you can go check that out too. This Jesus, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you see and hear, referring to the power of the Holy Spirit in their midst. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he, he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Praise God. Pray with me here. Lord, uh, I'm just thankful that you're alive, that you, you're not a historical fact, you're not something in the past bygone age, but you are here present, and it's so evident to any who have a heart to receive it that your presence is here, and I thank you for that, Lord. You are life-giving, life-restoring, rejuvenating, replenishing, pouring out joy and peace to all who say yes to you, Lord, and I thank you for it. I thank you, Lord God, for the beautiful voices of these little children who can proclaim your wonder and glory. And Lord, I just thank you that you are so beautiful and alive. And I pray, God, here this morning that your power would, uh, that was here in the worship would continue to hover over your word as we speak, Lord. And I especially pray for any who, who have not yet fully surrendered their life to you and confessed that you are risen and invited you as the risen Lord into their life. I pray, Lord, that by the time this morning is over, they will have done that and they can join with the rest of us celebrating that we're covered by the blood. So be working here, Holy Spirit, I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. I want to talk about two things here this morning. I want to talk about the fact of the resurrection, and I want to talk about the significance of the resurrection. I want to first talk about the fact of the resurrection, because it happens every year, this year being no exception, that in the few weeks leading up to Holy Week and leading up to Easter, we are bombarded, deluged by uh, the media who at this time of year always takes a special delight in investigating the views of certain very left-wing scholars 
Who are they say going to help us distinguish fact from faith? Who is the real Jesus? I always get irritated in the weeks leading up to Easter. This year being no accepted exception. It ticks me off. I need to vent a little bit of that here this morning. Is that all right with you? Thank you. Thank you very much. Four or five times this week, I saw on TV or heard on the radio the interviewing of different liberal scholars. John Dominic Crossan was on every one of them. And um, the point is to see what, what do scholars say about the historical Jesus. We know what these Christians who get all excited on Easter morning say. Hopefully you don't get, just get excited on Easter morning. But we know what they say, but what are the facts? One uh, series this, uh, this week was on Channel 2. On Monday and Tuesday, I'm sure some of you saw it. Uh, and it was called From Jesus to Christ. From Jesus to Christ. And the motif was, what is fact and what is faith? The very title of the program tells you the leanings of the program. The assumption is that Jesus, the historical Jesus, evolved from being just the Jesus to the Christ. From Jesus to Christ implies that Jesus was not Christ originally. But the thinking is that in the, in the passing on of the story, legends came about, and eva- eventually Jesus evolved into this Messiah figure, this divine figure. But what we want to know is the facts, distinguished from the faith of the later disciples. Of the 11 scholars, primary scholars, that they interviewed in this Channel 2 program, and see, the average person wouldn't know this, but nine of the 11 represent the leftmost wing of liberal scholarship, which is a minority of scholars. The other two are more centrist, but still would not by any stretch of the imagination be called conservative. There wasn't one conservative scholar interviewed in this program. And yet they always would say, well, scholars are saying, scholars are showing, scholars have demonstrated, and I'm pulling out my hair saying, what are the rest of us, idiots? Is it? Of course, when you understand that the producer of this, of this particular NOVA program was, or the consultant was a member of the Jesus Seminar, which is the leftmost wing of liberal scholarship, you understand their bias. And they accuse us of being biased in our faith. If there is a radical distinction between fact and faith, then the Bible tells us that our faith is in vain. When Peter preached this first sermon, he preached it on the presupposition, on the assumption that they all were witnesses to a fact. That this was not some story, some mythology that people just decided to believe or something of the sort. Faith is rooted in fact or your faith is futile. It's useless. It's silly. It's self-deception. It's delusional. And so I want to briefly say something about the fact that faith is based on. I want to do that by showing some of the fallacious moves that this left-wing scholarship makes that were deluged by with Time Magazine and Newsweek and the media, uh, Channel 2 included, uh, every Christmas season. There's three basic mistakes that they make, or three basic points I want to raise against them. It's based on an assumption, it's speculative, and in the end it explains nothing. Let me run through these. It's based on an assumption. The primary assumption that all this scholarship is based on is that the Gospels cannot be trusted. The Gospels are legendary. They're mythological. They're, they're uh, not reporting history. They're reporting the, some subjective impressions of some later disciples about Jesus. But if you want to be a scholar and you want to know the truth and you want to get the facts, you've got to get behind the Gospels. Their assumption is you can't trust the Gospels. Now why do they think this? Is it because the Gospels read like legends and read like mythology? And the answer to that question is no. 
If you compare the Gospels to typical legendary or mythological literature, you'll see, anybody can see, the radical difference between them. The Gospels are written with a very sober mindset. They're not inflammatory. They're not exaggeratory. And they include what scholars, what historians really look for when they're evaluating a historical document. They include a wealth of of, uh, eyewitness detail. Whenever an eyewitness is given an account, they include a lot of detail that is not directly pertinent to the account, but it's just part of what they recall. And so it is in the Gospels. Wolfgang Schadenwald was the foremost Homer scholar and scholar of ancient literature, possibly ever, but certainly in the last 50 years. And in a lecture to Tübingen, to a bunch of uh, liberal scholars, he said this, You all may, because of your theologies, dismiss the Gospels as legendary, but I want to tell you that in all my examination of ancient literature, I know of nothing that compares to the wealth of eyewitness graphic detail that we find in the Gospels. So if you dismiss the Gospels, you do not do it for historical reasons, you do it for presuppositional reasons, because of certain assumptions you make about the world. The reason why these liberal scholars dismiss the Gospels has nothing to do with historical evidence. It has to do with presuppositions. And the presupposition is that miracles can't occur. Miracles don't occur. We live in a closed system, a natural world, where everything operates by natural cause and effect. Now, of course, if you assume that, you've got to dismiss the Gospels as legendary because the Gospels are full of miracles. John Dominic Crossan is explicit about this. I don't believe for a moment that lepers really get healed, that blind people receive their sight, that the deaf receive their hearing, or that dead people rise from the dead. Therefore, I consider those accounts to be non-historical. In spite of all the other reasons they give us for thinking that they're historical. But you've got to ask the question, what are you doing here? Well, here's one question. is How do these liberal scholars find out so much about the universe? Where do they get this divine revelation that miracles don't occur. How do they know so much about things? The second thing you've got to ask yourself is this. Are you doing history or are you doing metaphysics? If you're doing history, you follow the facts. You look at the evidence and if the facts indicate that something out of the ordinary occurred, historical reasons should tell you that in fact you should believe that. But if you're doing metaphysics and you're just assuming at the start that miracles never occur, then there is no amount of evidence that could ever convince you otherwise. So now what you're doing, and this is what happens all the time, it drives me nuts, you rewrite history based on your presuppositions in spite of the evidence, instead of letting the historical evidence rewrite your presuppositions. And in the name of scholarship, they foist that upon everybody. It's based on an assumption. One of the reasons they sometimes give, I'll just say a word about this, one of the reasons they sometimes give for saying that the Gospels are not reliable is that, and this came out in the Channel 2 document, is that they're full of contradictions, you see. They're full of contradictions. Uh, Who can trust these accounts? There's all sorts of discrepancies. Why? We don't even know how many women went to the tomb and, and, and when they went to the tomb. We don't know that. The Gospel accounts disagree. And when the Passover occurred, you know, the Gospel accounts disagree on that. So we can't trust these accounts. I saw also on Channel 2, I think it was Channel 2, a documentary of, uh, is it James Cameron who, who produced Titanic? Is that right? Okay. Um, and it was really interesting. He said this. He's, he, this was several weeks ago. And he goes, to make this film, I looked at all, all, exhaustively, all the available eyewitness accounts of the sinking of the Titanic. And I... I tried to reconstruct what happened based on all these eyewitness accounts. And it wasn't easy, he said, because what amazed me was that no two of these accounts agree perfectly. But of course, you wouldn't expect them to since they're all written from slightly different perspectives. 
But the job of the historian, he says, is to try to take them all and make sense out of all of them. Since no one has a motive for lying, you assume they're telling the truth, so you try to make a coherent whole based on the different eyewitness testimonies. But of course, there are differences. This is how it is always in history. One historian I read said this, There is no account in the whole of history where you have more than two witnesses witnessing the same event, and they record it, where they don't, to some degree, appear to differ from one another. That's what you expect when you're dealing with eyewitness accounts. Here's the thing, though. Why is it when historians, the liberal historians, turn to the Gospels, all of a sudden they up the ante so high, and they treat the Gospels far more stringently than they ever treat any other literature? It's because of the presuppositions that they have that these Gospels can't be true in the first place. Nobody in their right mind tries to suppose that the Titanic didn't sink because the accounts differ with one another. Nobody in their right mind thinks that John F. Kennedy wasn't assassinated, even though all the accounts we have, even on videotape, don't agree with one another. Why on earth do people dismiss the resurrection account because the different accounts, to some degree, don't agree with one another? Do you see the, the inconsistency here? Now, as it turns out, the differences that you find in the Gospel accounts are so minor, and what they agree on is so major, this rejection of the resurrection based on these minor differences can be just exposed as being rooted in prejudice. One account says one woman went to the tomb, another says three, another says five. So what? If there was one, if there's five, there's certainly one and three. There's no contradiction there. At no point does one gospel author affirm what another denies. One says that the women went to the tomb while, uh, after it had just turned light. Another one says that it was still dark. Oh, that's a major contradiction. Maybe, just maybe, they started when it was dark and it got light as they walked. It happens sometimes like that in the morning. There's no major contradiction. One says that there was two angels inside the tomb. Another says there was two angels outside the tomb. One, one says there was an angel down the road a ways. Is that really that significant of a contradiction? What's incredible is that though these accounts all differ, what they have in common is magnificent. They all claim that the tomb was empty, and they all claim that the disciples and others experienced the resurrected Lord. Amen? And to dismiss the central point on the basis of these peripheral differences is just prejudicial. In fact, I'll turn the argument around. What these differences show, and I think the Lord allowed them to be there for a reason, what they show is that... You don't have here, whatever else you say about the gospel accounts, and now we're going to include the, the, the resurrection account of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. We've got five accounts. What it shows is that nobody or no group of people sat down and said, okay, you guys, we've got to get the story right. Because if they had sat down and got the story right, you wouldn't have these minor differences. The fact that you have minor differences show that we have five relatively independent accounts of the resurrection. And that enhances the credibility of each one of them. And do you know how rare it is to have anything happen in ancient history and to have five accounts all agreeing on the essential points, all different from one another, testifying of it within the space of a decade or so after it happened? It's unprecedented. Most of what we know about Alexander the Great is based on one source written 400 years after he lived. But scholars never say, oh, we don't really know who Alexander was. How come when it comes to the resurrection where we're dealing with five independent accounts written very close to the event, all of a sudden everything's ambiguous, we don't really know much about anything, who can trust the gospel accounts? I'm telling you. If there's anything you can believe about history, you can believe that the Jesus of the gospels is the historical Jesus and that he did rise from the dead. Amen. Praise the Lord. 
Second problem with these liberal scholars is that their, their work is very speculative. Now, it has to be speculative because they've already thrown out all the available evidence. What would no, I, don't want to, I was going to draw an analogy with Kenneth Starr, but I'm not going to do that. But what would happen if... No, I'm not going to... Come on, preach it. No. I got to... It doesn't matter. What would happen... You know, they decide ahead of time that the evidence that is available for Jesus Christ can't be trusted. So now the only remaining question is, well, who was Jesus? And since we can't really base what we're saying on the evidence, we just got to guess. We just got to guess. It would be like trying to figure out who Socrates was if you decided ahead of time you're not going to believe Plato. Because most of what we know about Socrates comes from Plato. It would be anyone's guess. Or let's decide. Let's try to figure out who Alexander the Great is if we decide ahead of time we're not going to trust the main biographer of his, written four centuries later. His name was Arian. Well, no one knows who Alexander the Great is. But we can all guess, of course. Maybe he was this, maybe he was that. And so you have in this liberal scholarship an incre incredibly speculative enterprise. Maybe he was a cynic sage, something. Maybe he was a wandering philosopher. Maybe he was a moralistic rabbi. Maybe he was sort of a wonder worker of sorts. Uh, maybe he was an egalitarian feminist, an ecologically concerned preacher of sorts. These are all options that are out there. And then, and this happens in all these documentaries, if you pay attention, they'll always say things like, well, the earliest evidence indicates that, and now they give their view. But you've got to ask the question, how do you know, what counts as early evidence? What counts as early evidence is all that, all that stuff in the Gospels that agrees with the view of Jesus that they think actually uh, represents the historical Jesus. If you think he was a cynic philosopher, well, then all those little passages that sound like a cynic philosopher, they're undoubtedly the earliest. The rest comes through later attrition, uh, uh, accumulation. But do you see how circular this is? They start by assuming, a what must the historical Jesus have been like? like? And then they draw on a little archaeological evidence and try to piece together a thing. And then whatever agrees with them is historical evidence. And whatever doesn't agree with them is not historical evidence. And they claim that historical scholarship. And I'm pulling out my hair. It's circular. And because it's speculative, the final point is that it doesn't explain anything. In the end, they have not explained what needs to be explained. Here's what you got to, got to wonder you got to wonder about this. If, if Jesus was, the most dominant view out there in, in this scholarship is that he was a, a philosopher, a cynic philosopher, putting forth little pithy sayings. If Jesus was just a cynic philosopher, I'm wondering how it is that within about 10 years, we know from the letters of Paul, 10, 15 years, you have got people all over the Roman Empire believing that he was the Son of God. Come down from heaven, the Lord God Almighty, died on the cross, rose from the dead. You've got people all over the Mediterranean world who are claiming that he, he made divine claims for himself, claiming that he did miracles, claiming that he had an, an unprecedented character, claiming that he died and claiming that he rose from the dead, and they're willing to die for it. And the question you've got to ask, if, you, if, you ask, if you're going to put it like this, uh, how do we get from Jesus to the Christ? The, the question is this. If Jesus was who they say he was, how do you explain that process? If Jesus didn't do miracles... Explain to me why all the early disciples, you don't have anybody breaking rank here, all the early disciples are proclaiming that he did miracles and they're willing to die for it, right after the event. If Jesus never made divine claims for himself, why do you have the gospel saying that he might made divine claims? If he didn't heal the blind and heal the deaf, why do these people believe to the point of being willing, being willing to die for it? That he healed the blind and healed the deaf. And if he did not rise from the dead, if in fact he was a little cynic philosopher who, who died like John Dominic Cross and said, a martyr's death, no one knows where, and dogs devoured his body. If that happened, how do you go from this over here within the space of 10 years, 
operating against every presupposition of Jewish culture, where now you have got Jews saying, He is Lord, He is God, He is Savior of the world, we will die for Him. That's a bigger miracle, I submit to you, than believing in the resurrection. It just doesn't explain what needs to be explained. You can't account for the faith of the early church if you suppose that their faith was not founded on fact. If you assume that they're telling the truth, everything is explained. If you assume that they're not, it's impossible to explain. And so I submit to you that it is not the Christians who are involved in some kind of self-delusion fantasy looking for a Jesus that never existed. It is the liberal scholars. Touche. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> And now a self-serving advertisement. If you want more information on that, i got two books on the topic. Uh, you can check it out. The bottom line is this. We've got every reason. If we ever have any reason for believing anything about history, we've got every reason to believe that Jesus Christ is who the, God, the Bible says he is. But now the question is, so what? So what? Maybe this is just sort of one of these oddities that occur in, in world history. You read it in the tabloids. People cite Elvis. You know, okay, a corpse came alive again. Yeah, so great. The answer to that question, in a nutshell, is this. So what? It means, as the Apostle Peter says here, it means that Jesus Christ is Lord. The resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is Lord. It wasn't, his character was, was uh, superb. No one could find fault in his character, but that alone didn't convince them that Jesus Christ was Lord. When he died, they were in unbelief. They were dumbfounded. And it wasn't his miracles alone, as fantastic as they were, that convinced them that he was Lord. Because when he died, they, were, they fell into unbelief. And it wasn't his teachings, though it was unprecedented. Everyone said they'd never heard anyone teach like this. That wasn't what convinced them that he was Lord. And it wasn't the way he fulfilled prophecies either. That was impressive for sure. But to believe that a man is the embodiment of God Almighty in a Jewish culture takes a lot of evidence. And what gave them that evidence, what changed everything, was when on Easter morning they found the tomb to be empty. And when on Easter morning they witnessed Jesus Christ alive in a transfigured state full of radiant glory. This is what changed their despair into joy. It was the resurrection that changed their fear into fearlessness and their cowardice into boldness and their unbelief into assurance. The resurrection, the experience of the resurrected Lord combined with the empty tomb that led Thomas to say, the doubting Thomas to say, my Lord and my God. This is what convinced them and this is what should convince us. The resurrection shows, as Peter says on the day of Pentecost, it shows that Jesus is Lord. Amen? This is not some fantasy. It's not some fact. It's not some story. It's not some conspiratorial program that people just came up with in order to, for whatever reason foisted upon the world. We're talking fact. It is real. It is here. It is now. Jesus Christ is Lord. This last week, many of us saw the Muslims go to Mecca. They make this pilgrimage. They're supposed to do it once in a lifetime, and they make this pilgrimage to Mecca. And part of their pilgrimage is to walk around this rock, the Kabbalah, seven times. And so you see this, these scenes of millions of people walking around this rock, and I, I admire their devotion. But I thank God that because of the resurrection, I don't need to go somewhere to walk around the rock. I thank God that because of the resurrection, I am standing on the rock. Praise God. And the rock is in me. 
And I don't need to walk around this rock. The, wa- the rock surrounds me. And in life's storms, in despairing situations, whatever life may throw at me, even if it's a matter of life and death, I know that because he lives, I live. I'm, I'm founded, I'm standing, I'm rooted on the rock of Jesus Christ. And wherever I go, even if, even if it's in the depths of Hades, he is there with me. The rock is in me and I am in the rock. Another part of the pilgrimage of the, the, the Muslims is that they, they, they run to this one area where there's this rock there and they throw stones at it. Because, and it symbolizes the throwing stones at the devil. This was the run that caused the stampede that killed 150 people tragically this last week. And then they throw stones at the devil. And I admire anybody who throws stones at the devil. But I thank God that because of the resurrection, I don't need to pick up pebbles. Because the rock that I'm standing on, the Bible tells us, has crushed the devil. Praise God. Amen. Next to the rock of Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation, the enemy is but a little, a little ant. And he's squarely underneath the rock that we stand on. So the bottom line is this. The resurrection means, the resurrection means that we no longer need to live in fear of that enemy. The resurrection means we no longer need to live in bondage to evil. The resurrection means, praise God, what difference does it make? It makes all the difference in the world. It means that our sins, as we sang this morning, all who say yes to him, your sins have been covered, you've been wiped clean, whiter than snow, you're reconciled with God. No longer is there anything that can separate you from the love of, of God and the love of Jesus Christ. His resurrection power covers you of all your unrighteousness. That's what the resurrection means. The resurrection means, and not only are we made right with God, but that God Almighty lives within us. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1. I love this. That that power which was in Christ when it raised him from the dead now dwells in us. Amen? Ephesians chapter 1. The power of the resurrection now lives in us. And it means this for all who say yes to him. It means that the very same power that brought the corpse of Jesus Christ to life again resides in you right here and right now. It means that the very same power that pushed the stone back, it blew the stone back. When they came, the stone was uphill, and that was a big stone. That very same power is within everybody who says yes to him. It means this, that whatever tomb you might ever find yourself in in life, and we sometimes find ourselves in tombs. I spent the last half of last year in a tomb. <laughs> you go through tombs, don't you? But if you know who you are, and if you know who Jesus is, and if you have confidence in the resurrection, and if you take the the proclamation of the word of God that his power lives inside of you, then you have this assurance, you are not going to stay in the tomb. The power that is in you, the life of Jesus Christ that lives through you, will not, cannot be kept in a tomb. I don't care how big the rock is. And so what we've got to know this morning, and this is what we celebrate, is that because he lives, you have God, every believer has God within them. The power to roll away the stone of despair and come out of the tomb of despair. You've got within you the power to rebuke the stone, the rock of addiction that keeps you entombed in slavery. You've got the power to set back, to roll back the stone of unbelief, the stone of hopelessness, the stone of despair, the stone of lovelessness. That resurrection power is within you. It's not by your own wisdom or your own ingenuity that those things get done. It's by relying totally on the resurrection power of the Lord who lives within us. He's alive. It's not just a historical fact. It's a reality within us. You have got, believer, the power. Know this. Walk in this. Live this. Think this. 
the power to resurrect your joy in living. Some of us have lost that. You've got the power to resurrect, and the Lord's desire is to resurrect. Your enthusiasm for the Lord and for the ministry, some of us have lost that. You've got the power to resurrect an interest in getting out of bed in the morning. Some of us have lost that. You've got the power to resurrect, and God wants to resurrect His love in your life. The power to resurrect your love for your wife or the love for your husband or your, your, your love for your children. His life is within you. Jesus Christ wants to live through you. To believe in the resurrection makes all the difference in the world. It means you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. You are resurrected in Christ Jesus. And that leads to my final point, and that is this. Because he has come out of the tomb, it means that we, in truth, shall never die. Amen? Of course, we go through this physical process at the end of things that the world sees as death. But if you know the truth, if you know who you are, if your faith is on right, that little thing that we go through has no sting, the Bible says. Death, where's your sting? It used to be there, but it's there no longer. We call it a metamorphosis. It's a transformation. It's a promotion, praise God. And that which the world fears, the cold, dead grave, to the believer is a stepping stone to the plan that God always had for us to live in. Amen? The resurrection changes all that. Let me give you just a testimony that I, I got last week. Someone came into the visitor's room. They were up from New York for a funeral, and they visited our church. And they said this to uh, Shelly and myself as we were in the visitor's room. They told us this story. They had come up from, for this funeral of their sister who had just died. And I wish you could have seen the joy that was radiating on both of their faces, him and his, his, his wife. And they said this, that for 22 years, they'd been praying for, this, for his sister. 22 years. And she seemed to have no interest in the Lord, uh, nothing to do with, with religion or anything like that. She, she uh, had no peace in her life. But somebody here invited her to church. And you've got to know the difference that you make. And I don't know who you are, and I don't even know this lady. But sometime in November or so, they invited her to church. And the Lord spoke to her, and she saw, she could see, sense the reality of this. And sometime in December, she gave her heart to the Lord and became a believer just prior, as I understand it, just prior to understanding out that she was terminally ill. And she died two weeks ago. And this brother and sister-in-law could not have been more ecstatic. And you think, what, are they warped? No, they believe in the resurrection. This woman who did not have peace while she was alive had peace while she was dying because the resurrection had taken away her fear of death. And now they could see and she could see this death as a promotion. She got moved up and she was the lucky one. That's the difference that believing in the resurrection makes. This morning, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Everything you could ever know with your head, if you're honest about it, tells you you should believe in him. But not only that, but everything in your heart tells you you need to believe in him. You know, if you're honest with yourself, that this world can't be all there is. And on this one point, everything that you could ever know with your head confirms what you feel in your heart. And I want to give you this morning the opportunity to act on it. And it's the simplest thing in the world. The Lord has made it this way. I want to invite you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the resurrected Lord, and invite Him in His resurrected life to come into your life. And so what do I want to do here? In 30 seconds, 
is to lead us all in a, in a, quiet, in a silent prayer and invite you who are non-believers to pray this prayer. And the Bible says this makes an eternity of difference. And then when we're done, you can join with us as we celebrate one more time the song, We Are Covered by His Blood. We Are Covered by His Blood. Will you do it this morning? Holy Spirit, move in people's hearts here to open up their minds and hearts to receive you. Pray with me, if this is your desire, this prayer. Let's close our eyes. Father, I know I am a sinner in need of your forgiveness. I have not lived the way you'd want me to live. I want to turn from that life and live for you. I don't understand a lot about this, but I believe that you are Lord. I believe that you died for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the dead. And so I ask you right here and right now, Lord, forgive me my sin and live inside of me. I want you to be Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.